I want to speak to you today about prayer. If you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going through a series through the book of Philippians. Uh, this is the third week, and uh, so we're going to look at three verses today, Philippians 1, 9, 10, and 11, and we're going to learn about prayer. Uh, I heard about a, a particular uh, man in this uh, a city, and he wanted to build a business and uh, an establishment, uh, but there was going to be a lot of things that were going to happen inside that business, a lot of partying and drinking and other things going on uh, that uh, Christian people were not comfortable with. And there was a church actually right next door to where they're about to build this establishment. So the church was opposed to it. They didn't want to see it built. But construction started, and they started building this business. And, and uh, just before it was finished, lightning struck this business, and it burnt it completely to the ground. Uh, the church congregation began loudly gloating and bragging, saying, God has destroyed this place that was going to bring all this wickedness into our city. And so they were gloating about that. Well, the owner who was building this business, he sued the church. And he said, you're responsible for this, and you're going to pay for this. And he said that the prayers of the church had destroyed his business and had cost him this building. Well, the church leaders, oh, they denied having any part of this. They said, no, 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 that wasn't us. We didn't do this. We shouldn't be held liable for this. But the case went to court. And the local judge heard the, the, the lawsuit. He listened to the, the business owner make his case. He listened to the church leaders and talk about their case. And he was blown away at the end of all of this. He didn't know what ruling to, to pass down about it. And the reason was, he said, I can't believe what I'm hearing. I'm hearing this, uh, this, this, this owner of this business is clearly not a Christian, and all that he wanted to do inside this business is clearly not Christian, but he believes in the power of prayer, and I'm listening to church leaders who want nothing to do with this, who think there absolutely is no power in prayer, because they're saying their prayers had nothing to do with this being destroyed. Now, I tell you that little funny story to, to ask you this question, that do you believe in the power of prayer? And not like the, the, the Christian bookstore, you know, bookmarker that you get, you know, I believe in the power of prayer. Or if you're really spiritual, you know, a bumper sticker on the back of your car that says, I, you know, I believe in the power of prayer. Or maybe you wear one of those wristbands or something cheesy like that that says the power of prayer or, you know, get you a cheesy hat or a t-shirt. You know, Christian people do some of the strangest things, don't they? Or a coffee mug that says, you know, and, and, and that's, man, we believe in the power of prayer. We even got the coffee mug to prove it, right? No, do you really believe in the power of prayer? And the Apostle Paul most certainly believed in the power of prayer. And if you're someone who's struggling with knowing how to pray, maybe you get to start to praying and you're thinking, I don't know what to pray about. I really don't know what to say. I don't know what to ask. I don't know what to request. Let me give you some help. Uh, find, you can just Google this. Google the prayers of the Apostle Paul. And it'll bring up something. And you can see all the different prayers in the Bible that Paul prayed. And use that. That's kind of like a guide for you. And what he prayed, you can pray for yourself and pray for others. And Philippians 1, 9 through 11 is an example of one of the prayers of Paul that I hope you'll learn. Now, you don't necessarily have to memorize it, but I hope you'll be familiar with it. I hope you'll come back to it from time to time and use this in your prayer. So let me ask you, not only do you pray, but what do you pray about? What do you pray for yourself but here's an even better question. Not just what do you pray for yourself, what do you pray for others? What do you pray for other Christians? You know, I'm afraid that, and I hope you don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but I'm afraid we pray way too much about temporary things. I'm afraid that we pray way too much about physical things. 
Don't misunderstand me. If someone's sick, we should pray for them. And that's biblical. But if every time our prayer request is pray for her, she's sick, pray for him, he's traveling, we've missed something. Very rarely do you see Paul praying for someone because they had some kind of circumstantial need. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray about people who are sick or traveling or uh, they have a test coming up or something like that, right? But what I am saying to you is that we should pray a lot more about the things that will last 100 years from now or things that are going to last 1,000 years from now, things that are going to be lasting millions of years from now. That's what we should be praying about. And that's what Paul prayed about. His prayers focus not just on the temporary, how do I get through the week? His prayers focus a lot more on how can I, when I stand before God, be found faithful? What are the things that the people that I love the most are going to be experiencing eternal rewards for a thousand years from now? Not just that her toenail hurts, let's pray that she gets through the week, right? Let's pray for these things that are going to last forever. Now, I want you to look with me at at Philippians uh, chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 9 through 11. Notice what Paul says here. Now, again, I told you we're in a series called Joyful Fellowship. Those are two words that I think help us to understand what the book of Philippians is about. It's written in prison. Paul is in prison, but he's writing a book that talks about rejoicing in the Lord. And one of the things we talked about a couple weeks ago is the fact that joy can be found in this life. It's just not found in this world. That's a statement I heard recently, and I want to say that to you because I want you to understand that's what the book of Philippians is about. That you can have joy in this life, but you won't find it in this world. Joy is found in Christ. Joy is found in knowing Him. So you can have joy in this life, but you won't find joy in the things of this world. You find joy by having fellowship with God and fellowship with His people. And, and, and what we looked at last week for our anniversary Sunday is that the Apostle Paul is filled with confidence for these Philippian Christians, not because of how good they are, but because God has begun a good work in them, and he is going to complete that work. And so Paul just, he has this excitement and confidence about the fact that God has begun a good work in them, and God will finish it. Now, if you want to know about the good work that God began in the Philippian church, I would encourage you to read Acts 16. You ever heard of the Philippian jailer who said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You ever heard of of Lydia who was the seller of purple? It says her heart had been opened to the Lord. God had begun a good work of calling out these people in this Greek city called Philippi. He had started a people of God in that city, a church, and he had begun a good work. And Paul says he's going to complete that work. And the prayer that we're about to read here in these three verses are how God was going to complete that work. Look at it with me. Verse 9. And this I pray. He gets right to it. This is what I'm praying for you. That your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense Till the day of Christ. Now, it's the second time so far that he's used that that phrase, the day of Christ. Look back at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it or will complete it or will finish it 
until or at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, again, look at verse nine or verse 10. He says that I want you to be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Have you ever told someone not only that you're praying for them, but what you're praying for them about? Now, some of you may not want to do that because if you're praying that somehow your, your, your boss will, will get sick and won't be able to be your boss any longer, you should not be telling them that, right? But now, have you ever gone to someone and said, not only am I praying for you, but this is what I'm praying for you. These are the specific requests. You know what I think a lot of times our prayers are like? Lord, bless her. <laughs> and we'll never know if those prayers are answered, right? Because they're so generic. Lord, bless him. And then here's my favorite. Lord, bless all the people, Right? Paul didn't really pray that way. He says, and this is what I'm praying for you. And he begins to list specific, concrete, particular things that he prayed for them about. And one of the main things he's praying for, if you want to know what this prayer is about, it's about this. It's about growing as a Christian. He's praying for them to be strong, mature, growing Christians. And I hope you pray for that for me. Because if you, if those of you who've been coming for a while know that I'm not a perfect Christian, you know that I need to grow as a Christian. And I would love for you to take this prayer and pray it for me. And I would love to take this prayer and I'm going to, I'm going to pray this prayer for you. It's a prayer for Christian growth. And that's what we're going to learn about. I think there are four things that Paul prays for as it relates to growing as a Christian, a prayer for Christian growth, that we should pray not only for ourselves, but that we should be praying for others. And I hope that you'll learn uh, the specific request that Paul gives us here in this prayer for Christian growth. Let's pray together and then I'll give you those four things. Father, thank you for the privilege of sharing your word, of preaching it here today. Thank you that I don't have to stand before people and try to figure out what to say or come up with something clever. God, you've given us your perfect, inspired word. And as we open the Bible and as we read it, we're reading the very words of God. As we, as we, re, as we hear the Bible spoken, we're hearing your voice. You speak to us by your word. But Lord, we need the work of your spirit to open up our eyes, to help us to understand these things, to illuminate our understanding so that not only we read it and kind of understand the grammar, so to speak, of it, but we need to understand how it applies to us, how it relates to our lives. And so I pray that as we look at this prayer about Christian growth, that we would be equipped to know how to pray, not only for ourselves, but for others. Lord, we want to grow. And this prayer is how we can grow as Christians. Bless us in that way today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have something to write with, I hope you'll write a couple of these things down. We're talking about a prayer for Christian growth. Number one, I want you to see that we should pray for abounding love. If we're praying for others, one of the things that we should pray for each other about is that we would have abounding love. And that's the most important thing on the Apostle Paul's mind for these Christians in Philippi. He wants them, more than he wants them to have healthy bodies, more than he wants their kids to do well, more than he wants them to be safe, he wants them to abound in love. And you know, there, you know in English we have one word for love, 
And, 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 and that's kind of a, a sad thing because someone may say, I love my wife and I love Cheerios. And they use the exact same word, right? And hopefully they don't love Cheerios and their wife with the same level. I don't know. Some people I've met, they may love Cheerios more than their wife. But we have one word for love. But, but the Greeks had four words for love. Sorge was one word. It was kind of like a parental love. You had phileo, which is like a, 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 a not, not phileo steaks. I mean, you're already thinking about lunch. It's, it's a phileo. It's like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo was brotherly love. Uh, you have um, ergos, which was, uh, was kind of like a, a romantic kind of love. But then you had agape, which was a, a sacrificial, selfless, divine kind of love. And that's what Paul was praying for them. Because you see, people who are not Christians can have that you know, friendship kind of love or romantic kind of love or parental kind of love, but, but only those who know Christ can have this divine kind of love, this agape love. It's this love that the Bible speaks of in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. And every time you find agape love in the Bible, it's always combined with some kind of sacrifice, some type of giving, some type of selflessness. And it really carries the idea of, of, of not a feeling, not this kind of like an emotional feeling towards someone, although that's certainly involved, but it's, it's more of an act of the will of choosing to love someone. And in the way that you're loving this person with agape love, it is, is loving them with their best interest in mind. So that's the selflessness of it. It may not be what I want to do. It may not suit me very well. The focus is not on me, but this person needs this. And so I am going to do this for them. Again, for God so loved the world that He gave he had the interest, the eternal interest of those that he loved in mind when he gave his only begotten son. But here's the question. When he says abounding love, what, what is he, who is he talking about them loving? Well, I think ultimately he's talking about that they would have this agape, sacrificial, selfless love abounding towards one another, towards each other. That they would love each other the way that God loves them. In fact, that's what Jesus said is the mark of discipleship. That hereby people will know that you're my disciples, John 13, 34, and 35, because of the love that you have one towards another. Now, certainly, you can't really love other people if you don't love God. So that's included, abounding love, love for God. But really, I think specifically, he's talking about how they would love each other. And he wants them to abound. And that word is to grow in this love. And if you read the book of Philippians, you're going to find that these were good Christians. They, they really, they were faithful Christians. But yet he's saying to them, you can still grow in your love. And he goes on to say in verse 9, that your love would abound yet more and more and more. That's what he wants to see in their lives. You know, our kitchen faucet for the first two years of this house that we're living in now, or almost two years, had the worst water pressure you can imagine. I mean, it is just, it, 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 <laughs> it drove us crazy. Because, I mean, honestly, uh, when I was filling up the, the, the water container for my coffee maker, I mean, literally, I felt like I could go mow the grass and then come back and it'd still be filling that thing up. And it's like a trickle. And we've had several different plumbers come out. And almost every plumber would take a look at it and they'd open up the, the cabinets and they'd say, you know, you need all new piping. You know, you need, these are old pipes. You need galvanized pipes. And this is what, you know, you need this and this and this. And it's going to be $1,000. It's going to be this much money. I was thinking, 
thinking, oh, well, I think I'll, I think I'll, I'll just go with this trickle of water for a while. It's, you know, that's better than, than what they're suggesting. But then finally, we had this one plumber come. And, uh, and this guy evidently knows his stuff. And he was looking at it. And he said, you know, let me try something. I think there's, there's something that's clogging up uh, the, the faucet. Let me take it apart. He said, he said, it's going to cost you about $90 for me to do that. Is that okay? And I'm thinking, yes, compared to the $1,000, you know, that your brother was just telling me about last week, 90 sounds great. So he pulls this thing off 30 minutes later. I mean, honestly, it is like Niagara Falls, right? I mean, this thing is just gushing out water. I mean, we're taking videos of this for people that have come to our house. I mean, my mother-in-law and my parents have been here. They've all tried. They've all suffered through it. We're taking videos saying, look, we finally have normal water pressure. When you turn this thing on, you don't have to wait an hour. To fill this thing up. Now, in fact, uh, when I try to, to fill up the, the water reservoir, uh, I can barely turn around and like grab the, the coffee to bring it over there before it's filled up. It is wonderful. And, and the idea of abounding love is that overflowing, abundant, abounding love. And I wonder, is our love more like a, for others, is it more like a slow trickle of love? Or is it like that overflowing love? And that love that God has, it's like an abundant stream that's just constantly flowing. And I wonder, is that how our hearts are towards others? You know, no wonder Paul prays first for their love, because you remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 13? You know 1 Corinthians 13. If you've ever been to a Christian wedding, you've heard 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient, love is kind, right? Goes through all that. But you remember what he said in the first couple verses? He says, though I speak with the tongues of angels... And have not love, I'm nothing. Though I have great faith so that I can move mountains, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. Though I give my body as a martyr and I am burned as a martyr for Jesus, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. So Paul says, I'm praying for you to have this central grace in the Christian life, which is abounding love. And I wonder, as you look back over your week this week, um, do you have abounding love towards someone in the church family? Has there someone that you've loved sacrificially or that you've served lately? I, I know this, that none of us are in danger of loving people too much. We all have room to grow in this love. And like these Philippians, we could handle more and more and more of God's love flowing through us. And I wonder, have you prayed for any Christians in our church this week that they would have abounding love? And if not last week, I hope this next week you'll pray that. That God, for someone specific by name, that they would abound in love. That's the first thing he teaches us to pray. The second thing I want you to see is that not only should we pray for abounding love, but secondly, we should pray for and in judgment. You know, there are a couple different words in the Bible used for knowledge. But this one here refers not to kind of like just a factual knowledge, but like a full uh, experiential kind of knowledge, an experienced or a mature knowledge, a knowledge that's, that's, that's been tested and, and tried and experienced. It's a, it's a mature knowledge. So, and then the other word he uses is not just that they would love in knowledge, but in all judgment. And the word judgment means discernment or perception. And, and, and he uses the word all to describe this in all these different kinds of circumstances that they would find themselves in, that they would know how to love people in all the different kinds of circumstances that they're going to meet people in. How many of you know that no two people are alike? 
<laughs> My dad and I were talking about a man that we know, and we're saying, you know, when God made him, he just completely threw away the mold because there's just not another person like him. He is just completely unique. And so if we're going to have discernment, we're going to have to love people with, with a lot of different kinds of, of discernment, a lot of different ways that we're going to need wisdom to know how to love them. And notice the connection that he has here. Verse 9, your love abounds, but your love is, is, the environment of your love is in knowledge and in discernment. And this is really important. I hope you won't miss this. Because if love is not grounded in, and it's not rooted or planted in knowledge and in discernment, well, then it becomes impulsive. Uh, it becomes erratic. And it becomes prone to deception. Uh, Warren Wiersbe said that, that, that Christian love is not a blind kind of love. It's a love that, that understands and discerns. It's a discerning kind of love. And notice he says in verse 10, the reason that he wants them to have this kind of, of knowledge and discernment, look at verse 10, that you may approve things that are excellent. And, and approve means to test. And, and, and in other words, he's saying, I want you to be able to discern and to know what is good and best. I want you to be able to look at two or three or four different things and by knowledge and discernment be able to choose that which is best, that which is excellent. So your love is not just this emotional feeling, but it's this, it's this love that's also grounded in knowledge and in discernment. You know, think of it this way. Maybe this illustration will help. If you had to have some kind of major surgery... Would you rather have the surgeon who not only did well in, in school, passed all their exams and, and, and so forth, uh, but also has, has done more than one surgery? When you want someone who's, well, the guy walks in, open heart surgery, this is my first one. <laughs> Looking forward to it. See you Monday. And Miss Edna's shaking her head saying, uh, next, can you bring in the next person? How many of you, you're more comforted. Now, no one's comforted when they have that major surgery, but you're more comforted to find out that this person's done this for decades, right? You're more comforted to know that they have experience. And so Paul's saying, I don't want you to just love, but I want you to have a love that's based in, in the knowledge of God's Word, in, in the experience of His truth, so that you can discern. Because sometimes people who are, are emotionally caught up with the feelings of love can be led astray by false teaching. You know, you know, cults love to find people who are brand new professing Christians, who have a lot of excitement, but don't know truth. And Paul is saying, I want you to love others and love God, but I want you also to be grounded in knowledge and in discernment. I wonder what you would say to your son or daughter or someone that you love who's in their 20s and they come home and they've had one date with a perfect stranger. And they said, I'm in love. I'm, have you seen Elf before? I'm in love. I'm in love. I'm in love, right? They, they come in and they say, I, we went out to eat. I'm just so in love. We're getting married on Saturday. How many of you would say, hold your horses, right? Uh, do you even know this guy's name fully, right? So you have a, a love, but is it discerning? Is it rooted in experience and maturity, that mature discernment? I wonder, do you have that? Do you have that biblical, good, moral discernment that you can be able to, to, to see things from God's perspective because you know His Word? Do you know 
His truth enough to be able to test if something is good or, or evil in His sight and be able to choose that which is the best. I mean, think about all the different people that we have to love and interact with. You know, you, um, you, as a pastor, you, you deal with this on a regular basis, but, but you, you, you deal with uh, children and teenagers, you deal with, with elderly, who, and, and, and they have very different experiences in the present moment. And God's called me to love each of them, from the youngest to the oldest, but, but the circumstances of how I love them is, is different. So we have to love people with opposite personalities, we're going to meet people in the church who some of them are talkative, they've never met a stranger, and you're trying to figure out a way eventually to get away from them after two hours of them talking, right? You ever met that person? We call that spider webbing. I mean, they just bounce from one situation to, I have a friend like that. I mean, he, is, he talks about, well, you know, the other day I bought a car, and oh, that reminds me, have you ever bought a new pair of shoes? Oh man, these shoes, and he just, he bounces from one subject to the other, and before you know it, I mean, you're faking a heart attack so you can just get out of the conversation. So you have some people who have one personality and you have other people with a completely different kind of personality. And maybe one personality you're really drawn to, the other personality you're really not drawn to. But we have to love them. And knowledge and discernment helps us to know how to love people who are very different. I think it, it's, this is so important even in this day that we live in right now because we find ourselves constantly bombarded with all different kinds of of, of, of political conversations, people that disagree with us on various things, and, and we need to know how to love them, even in the midst of our disagreements. And so do we have that kind of discernment? So he prays abounding love. More, he, he prays that they would have this kind of mature discernment. Number three, I want you to see that he prays that they would be sincerely blameless. Verse 10. So he's prayed, abounding in love, that that love would be in knowledge and in all discernment so they can improve what's best in excellence. Notice, ec excellent. In verse 10, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So that's his purpose through this. He wants them to be able to stand before God having been sincere and lived without offense. You know, sincere literally means that which you hold up to the sunlight and passes inspection. And then, without offense is kind of tricky for us, because when we say, hey, don't be offensive, what we mean is don't be rude to someone, or don't hurt someone's feelings. If we say, I've been offended, our English way of understanding that is, someone has hurt my feelings. Well, the, the word offense here means to make someone stumble. And so it doesn't mean that their feelings have necessarily been hurt, but it means that we've caused them to trip. And it's often used in the Bible to describe someone who claims to be a Christian, but they live in a way that causes other people not to follow Christ, but to stumble and fall away from Him. So he's saying that he wants these Christians to live in such a way that people who watch their lives don't stumble on their way to believing in Jesus. That they're not a roadblock that keeps people from getting to Jesus. He's saying, I'm praying that you won't cause other people to stumble, but rather that you'll live a life of genuineness, of sincerity. And notice he's not just praying, hey, that I pray that, you, that, that you'll be sincere and without offense on Sundays or, or, or for this month. But he says, look at verse 10, he says, until the day of Christ... He has a long-range view. He's saying, I'm praying that all through your life, until you stand before the Lord, that you've lived sincere and that you've not been a stumbling block to others. I wonder, do you pray that for people? 
We should pray that for one another. We should pray that we ourselves wouldn't be a stumbling block and that the people in our church family would not be a stumbling block to those that they work and live with. He wanted their lives to pass God's inspection on the day of judgment. Not having lived an insincere, hypocritical life, but also not living a life that's caused other people to stumble. You know, since Melissa has had Thomas and she's been recovering, uh, Carly and Colby have been helping me do some cleaning. Now, it's been so nice to have my parents here to help with some of that. Uh, but we're trying to keep Melissa from, from cleaning, which is probably my hardest job right now, to be honest with you, is keeping her sitting down and <laughs> not working. But I'll have Carly and Colby help, help me do some cleaning. And, um, and then there's, there's, there's two types of cleaning. There's, there's, there's what Carly and Colby feel is clean, and there's actual clean. <laughs> there, there, there's, there's what Carly and Colby think is clean and what mommy when she inspects it, says it's clean. You know, it's funny because it takes three of us to do what she normally does, and it's still not as good. But, but it's nice to have some of their help, and they, they, they try to help, and they, they're doing much better. But it, but it is funny where, where Melissa has one idea of what's clean. And let me tell you, Korean clean is a certain kind of clean now. Let me tell you, it is a certain kind of clean. And she, she's got that house, when she's, when she's healthy, she's cleaning that house everywhere. She, and it's just like a, uh, you know, she's just amazing at it. And me and Carly and Colby are not as amazing at it. But, but, but when I ask them, hey, is, is the floor clean in the kitchen? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's clean. And then, yeah, some of your parents are laughing. You know what this is like. And then mommy walks in there and says, no. No. You see, it passed pass their inspection, but it doesn't pass mommy's inspection. Now, Paul is saying that really what matters is not how well we think we've done, but when we stand before God, have we passed his inspection? That when we stand before him at the day of Christ, that we have lived sincere, genuine, and that we've been blameless. In other words, we haven't been a cause for people to stumble. Now, this is a perfect opportunity to remind you about what the gospel is, that, that, that we don't believe, those of us who are Christians, who truly know Christ, we don't believe that we have eternal life and get to heaven because when we stand before God, our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds and that we have passed the inspection. And he says, yeah, you've been a little bit better than the next person, and so I'm going to let you in. That's not how we get to heaven. We get to heaven by being perfect. If you're not perfect, you don't get into heaven. Does that sound like bad news? It is bad news because none of us are perfect except one. There's one who's perfect and his name is Jesus. And we get into heaven because we have repented of trusting in ourselves and as Paul will go on to say in Philippians 3 that we are found in him not having our own righteousness so we have the perfect righteousness of Christ on our behalf, on our account. And so we are perfect, not perfect in our own righteousness, but we are perfect in the righteousness of Christ. And so when he talks about here passing inspection, he's not talking about passing inspection necessarily for eternal life. He's talking about the way that we've lived as his servants. Have we served him as children in a way that brings honor and glory to Him. You see, we can't be perfect in this life, but we can be sincere. You're not going to be perfect, and neither am I, but we can be sincere. And we can live in a way that doesn't cause other people to stumble. 
How many of us have heard people say, you know, I would go to church if it weren't for all the what? Hypocrites. I would be a Christian if it weren't for all those hypocrites. Now, sometimes that's overspoken, but the reality is, is there's a lot of truth to that as well, too. And God forbid that we would live in such a way that would cause other people to stumble and that we would be in some way an obstacle or a roadblock or a pothole, so to speak, as someone is, is hearing the truth of the gospel and they encounter us and they're turned away. You know, and to me, every time I think about this day of Christ, it's a sobering thought to think that I'm going to stand before the Lord the one who knows all things. I'm going to stand before Him and I'm going to give an account of my life. And that should motivate us to be living sincere and seeking to live blamelessly so that we don't cause others to stumble. Let me give you the last one. So we've prayed for abounding love, mature discernment. We pray for us to be sincerely blameless. And then finally, that we should pray to be fruitful in righteousness. Let me read it, verse 9 all the way to the end again. And this I pray, that your love abound yet more and more. Your love abound more and more in knowledge. That is that experience, or mature knowledge. And in all judgment or discernment, that you may approve, that is test things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Notice there's not a period at the end of verse 10, so he's continuing on, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. You see that phrase, being filled, the fruits of righteousness. What's that mean? I think what it means is Paul is talking about their character and their conduct, the way that they live, their, that they act in a righteous way, that they have righteous character. And again, he's still talking about standing before the Lord and that when they stand before the Lord, their lives, the way they've lived, it's like they have been filled with the fruits of righteousness. So they're, they're standing with God, before God, with all this fruit of righteousness that they've lived in a righteous life. And notice that they've lived this life not by their own strength. Look at the last part of verse 11. It's, it's by Jesus Christ. So he's the means by which this, this righteous life has come about. It's by him and it's unto or it's for the glory and praise of God. That's the reason behind it all. It's for him. And, and, and fruit is so often used in the Bible to describe someone's actions or their conduct. It's metaphorically used to talk about what comes out of a person's life, what they say, what they think, what they do, where they go, how they live in their daily life. And so he's saying, I'm praying that the fruit that comes from your life will be fruit of righteousness. You know, an apple tree produces apples and a pear tree produces pears and those who are grafted into Jesus, as John 15, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And anyone who is in me, who is grafted into me, will bear the fruits of righteousness. And so is Jesus righteous? Yes. And so those who belong to Jesus will be righteous 
Write this verse down if you're taking notes. 1 John 3, 7 through 10. Let me read it for you. You can read it later. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifest, or he came into the world, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, or he doesn't live a lifestyle of sin. For his seed, that is God's seed, or God's life, remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, or they are made known. The children of God are revealed, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. You know what he's saying there? He's saying those that know Christ live righteously. And those that don't know God and don't know Christ, they live unrighteously. And so Paul's saying, I'm praying for you Christians that you will be filled with the fruits of righteousness. And again, I, I, want, I can't emphasize this enough as we think about righteousness and, and, and righteousness in our lifestyle that we are not saved by our works of righteousness that we do. We are saved by grace through faith. But what Paul is saying here is though we are not saved by our righteous works, those who have been saved will bear righteous fruit. And again, I mentioned that the word fruit is used a lot in the Bible. And I think it's used very intentionally. Think about this. Uh, when, when you think of fruit, fruit is not something that you can manufacture. You, you can't make fruit. You know, uh, I think it was uh, Adrian Rogers who used to say that you can find factories that make clothing, that make cars, that make computers, but you won't find a fruit factory. Fruit is not produced in a factory. Fruit comes in an orchard. And the reason is, is because fruit requires life. And the same thing is true. We cannot, in our own effort, we cannot somehow create works that please God. We can't self-help our way to be able to measure up to the kind of lives that God wants us to live. It's impossible. It's like going home and saying that you're going to just make fruit. No, you can't do that. But what we can do is abide in Christ who is the vine. That's what we can do. And as we abide in Him, we begin to bear fruit. And no wonder Paul prays about this. Think about this. He's not saying, he's not berating them saying, hey, go out and bear fruit tomorrow. He's not saying, look, I'm going to guilt trip you until you go out and until you bear fruit. You know, it's not like he's a drill sergeant and he says, drop and give me 50. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Paul's saying, God, I pray for these Philippians to love you with a growing love that has, that has mature knowledge and discernment. And God, I'm praying that they'll be sincere and, and, and genuine and blameless before you, not causing others to stumble. And God, I pray that when they stand before you, they'll be filled with righteousness. You see, he's praying to God about this because he knows that God must first work in them for this fruit to be produced in their lives. And that's why we need to pray this for ourselves and for others. Because those of you who are trying to get you know, your, uh, your spouse to live faithfully, it won't be by you berating them. Those of you that want your children to live a certain way and they're, they're, they're stumbling into things they shouldn't, it, they're, they're not going to turn because you berate them and guilt them. Turn first to the Lord 
and pray that the Lord would so work in them. And, and how encouraging, as I bring this message to a close, that, that, that Paul has already told them that God has begun a good work in them. And he's going to complete that work. And Paul is confident that when these Christians stand before the Lord, they're going to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. I close with this story. I heard about, this is a true story. I heard about a, a man who brought some people years ago from a, uh, from a third world country uh, to London, England. And it was the first time that they had ever been uh, in a modernized city. They had, the, the only houses and, and that they had ever lived in were, were tents and they had never seen uh, uh, the, the kind of, of modern electricity and, and modern living that they saw in London. And they were staying in a hotel and they had never before seen faucets. This message has a lot of faucets in it. I didn't realize that till just now. But they've never seen water faucets before. And so they're in these hotel rooms and they are fascinated. They're just turning on the water and just watching the water run and turning it off and just amazed by this. And you know, at the end of that stay, they actually unhooked the water faucets and had packed them in their bags to take them back home because they were thinking that there was just magic that they could just kind of hook them somewhere and turn them on and, and, and water would come from it. In other words, they believed that if they just possessed the faucets, that the water would also come. And I think what Paul's trying to help them to see here in this is that all of these things that we need for Christian growth are not ours just because we own a Bible. They're not ours just because we come to church. They become ours in Jesus Christ. They they become ours as we know Him and as we abide in Him. And that's why he prays that they would abound in love, they would have mature discernment, that they would be sincerely blameless, and that they would be fruitful in righteousness. And all of these things he closes in verse 11 with two things. He says these are by Jesus. In other words, you get them through Him, and it's for the glory of God and praise of God. I hope that's how you want to live. That is how I want to live. I want to live unto the praise and glory of God. So should we pray for our brothers and sisters who are sick? Yes. Should we pray for those who are traveling to be safe? Yes. Should we pray for those that we love to be kept uh, safe from coronavirus? Should we pray for those in school and those at work? Yes. But friends, if we finish our prayer time and we've only prayed that our friends and family will get through the week with these temporary things. Uh, We've really missed it. Let's start praying not only about those things, but let's start focusing more about those things that will matter a thousand years from now. About those things at the day of Christ, where people stand before the Lord with abounding love, mature discernment. They've been sincerely blameless, and they're filled with the fruits of righteousness. Will you pray with me? Father, we We cannot in our own flesh grow as we should. We need your work in us. And Lord, I pray for each of us in this room today that the work that you've begun in us who are Christians, you would complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be filled with the fruits of of righteousness. I pray that we would be sincerely blameless. Lord, I pray that we would be mature in our discernment. And then, Lord, I pray that we'd be abounding in love. And that we'd not only selfishly pray for ourselves, 
but that, Lord, we'd pray for each other, that we'd pray for one another. Lord, I thank you for your goodness, for your grace to us, for all of your blessings upon our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name.